You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. If you've got your Bibles, go to 1 Peter chapter 3. And um, if you don't, that's all right. So if you've got a smartphone, you can pull it up. Um, we got one screen this morning, all right? So we're all going to have to share. And uh, I'll have the verses up there. We're going to be in a couple of places in the Bible. Um, in the passage this morning, I don't want us to lose sight of it, is about suffering. Um, but how do we find encouragement in the midst of suffering? So when I say suffering to you, how do you, how do you think about it? What do you think about as suffering? Um, I think there are two... Two things that come to mind. One is uh, we think of the suffering of those people, uh, whoever those are, and uh, we imagine uh, the horrific suffering out there. The same reality, though, we have a suffering that we all experience. Um, if you've lived on this planet long enough around other people, you know suffering. And so the Bible speaks about suffering from the very beginning all the way to the very end and encourages us. I mean, even the earliest of all the Old Testament books, Job, you know what it is? It's a theology of suffering. In many ways, that's the first inspired words of God to his people. And so through all the Bible, the Bible addresses suffering in many different ways. Some of it is uh, suffering, just living in a fallen world. Some of it's the suffering and the, and the pain that, listen, we, we, we have a lifespan and we, we come into the world um, living and dying at the same time. There's suffering that comes. That, listen, if you're an unbeliever, there's suffering that's going to happen. If you're a believer and you um, are walking in sin for very long, there's, old, there's suffering that comes with that. And then there's this suffering that Peter's going to talk about this morning, and it's the suffering for your faith, for who it is that you believe in, for, for Jesus, for living in the world with a hope that says, man, my hope's not in this circumstance, it's not in this day, it's not in this week. I actually have a hope that's with me all the time. It's a living hope that looks to the horizon of Jesus coming back, and I am living with God forever, and that's a hope. And the reality is, if we're living that out, if we're walking that out in our life, the Bible promises that there will be people that say, man, <clears throat> we don't buy that, and we don't buy you. And your life gets inspected, and you get slandered, or you get uh, persecuted, or you get to be, uh, you, you're made to feel uncomfortable, whatever it looks like, that if we're living out our faith, the reality is the world meets that he says, I don't, I don't like that. And so Peter's going to give us some encouragement. Now, I, I got to tell you, um, a couple of weeks ago, Fritz preached uh, the beginning of 1 Peter 3, preached on the husbands and the wives. And I thought I was doing myself a favor, like giving him the husband-wife passage. Uh, if, if I had thought further about it, I would have given him this passage, all right? Uh, probably, maybe... The hardest passage in the New Testament, I'm going to read you a quote from Martin Luther in just a second. Uh, Peter's going to start out okay. He's going to kind of suck us in, and then he's going to take us to places and you just scratch your head and go, Peter, of all the things you could have said, why did you say 
this. And uh, so now that you're reading that and not listening to me anymore, um, it's two sections. I want to deal with the first half of the last part of 1 Peter 3, and then the second half. So the first half, start in verse 13. I'm going to read a few verses. We'll talk about it, and then we'll get into the, uh, uh, the, the matrix of theology that, that Peter's going to give for us. So um, here's how it goes, uh, beginning in verse 13. It says, Now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what's good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. N- n- have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil." So he's going to say, hey, listen, when you're zealous for good works, which means more than just doing good works, but you're passionate about it, you're, you're motivated to it. You say, man, I, I, I want my life to honor Christ. I want to live that out. And that's a good thing. And, and it's going to culminate in what he says in verse 15, is honoring Christ the Lord as holy, as sanctified, as set apart in your life. And then he's going to move into 14. He's going to quote from Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12. In the beginning of that, Isaiah says, Man, the the Lord's hand is on me. And then the Lord is with us, and he's our sanctuary, and we have nothing to fear. There's nothing for us to dread, even if we find ourselves in harm's way. Now, the New Testament promises this, that we're going to be in harm's way as believers. I'd say this, and I want to be careful. I'm not too dogmatic about it, but man, if you've never been in harm's way because of your faith, then your life is radically different and unique from how the New Testament promises us that it's going to be. So then in verse 15, he says, listen, there's opportunities in these situations. So we're living out our faith, we're living out this hope, and it brings up opportunities for us to make a defense. The, the word there is, is um, uh, the word we get apologetics from. He, he's not talking about a discipline of apologetics, but, but he's talking about, listen, we'd give an apology, a, a defense, a, an answer for the hope that is in us, for, for the reason for the hope that's in us. And so, and we're to do it, he says, humbly and respectfully defending the hope we have in Christ, anyone that might ask. This hope is the hope of future salvation. It's the hope that says, look, I'm not going to dread, I'm not going to fear, I'm not bent out of shape, ultimately, about the circumstances of today. Now listen, I may be suffering them, I might be suffering your slander to me, all that, and none of it feels good, and I'm not trying to invite it, but the reality is I have a hope that's bigger than all of that. And so Peter says, listen, we should be people who make it, be able to make a defense for that. He's encouraging them to speak to anyone who might ask, anyone who might bring it up. 
What's great is it's not like, hey, just the churchy people that bring it up have a bunch of churchy language to say. I mean, this is what we do sometimes. I hear testimonies of people, and they're good, they're honest testimonies, but man, it's like they've been ruined by the church because they don't know how to talk real words about their real faith in a real world. And I think what Peter's saying, look, anybody that asks you, man, if you were sitting there at coffee, at Starbucks, drinking out of one of the Satan cups or whatever it was at Christmas, And somebody says, man, I, know, I notice a hope in you. So, so say that happens. And say, tell me about that. What would you be able to say? Would you be able to talk about it in real words, in a real world, about your real faith? That's what Peter is meaning. Not jargon, but a reality of who Jesus is and what your hope is. So Peter, he, <clears throat> listen, he knew this well. He's uniquely qualified to instruct the church in this area because there are three opportunities Peter had, and uh, one of them, he blew it. The other one, he blew it bigger. And then finally, he's successful. So, but you know the story. So the first one is Matthew 16. He's at Caesarea Philippi with Jesus. All the disciples are. And they say, Jesus, who will tell people who... Who do, who do people say that I am? And so one disciple gives one answer, another gives another. And Peter says, well, you're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. He kind of looks around, and Jesus says, man, you're, you're right about that. And you're right about it because God himself gave you those words. He, he opened your eyes. You were able to see it. God, God gave that to you. And then Jesus says, you know, I'm going to build my church on this. And then, and, and then the next scene is Jesus, right after that, he speaks to the disciples. He says, okay, now listen, you know who I am. Peter's just said it by the word of God. I'm Jesus, the, the, the Messiah, the, the Son of God, and I'm going to Jerusalem. When I get there, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be arrested and beaten, crucified to death on a cross. I'm going to lie in a grave three days, and then I'm going to be resurrected. And I'm letting you guys in on it. So Peter within five verses, goes from speaking the word of God to saying this. Peter takes him aside, begins to rebuke him. It never goes well. You decide you're going to rebuke Jesus this afternoon? Don't. All right? He rebukes him and says, Far be it from you, Lord. This will never happen to you. Now, we're going to Jerusalem. We're, we're, taking, we're taking this place back from the Romans. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. From five and five verses goes to speak the words of God, speaking the words of Satan. I'd call that a fail. I'd call that real life. Well, then later on, they get to Jerusalem. They're having a the last meal they're going to have together, celebrating Passover. Jesus speaks of being denied, and, he, and Peter says, man, I'll, I'll never deny you. I'm going to the death with you. If that's what we're doing, I'm going. And Jesus, in compassion, looks at Peter and says, no, you're going to deny me three times before the night's over. And he does. In fact, the scene is really sad. He's in the dark around a fire, 
And a servant girl asks him. And you know what? He has no defense. He has no answer except to say, no, no, no. I don't know him. Looking out for himself. Looking out for his own security. Fear and dread of a servant girl. And in some ways you might think, man, that must be the end of the story for Peter. He blows it two times, big time. And listen, the, the readers would have known about their writer. These stories, these are famous Peter stories. And the great news is, listen, that doesn't disqualify you. You failed. You, you blew it. You missed an opportunity. You, in the moment where you had the opportunity to shine the light of Jesus, to, to speak about what your hope is in, and you, you denied it, or you took on the, the, the appearance of the world around you to fit in. Doesn't disqualify you. You'll get another opportunity. Peter does. Turn over to Acts. You see Acts chapter 5. Peter, he's preaching. The chief priest, the high priest, the one who had dragged Jesus before the council speaks to Peter and says, Listen, I'm putting you in jail. I tried to stamp this out. We put Jesus to death. I'm putting you into jail. You can't speak about this anymore. The angel of the Lord comes, opens up the jail cell. Says, Peter, go back out to the temple right there in the middle of everybody. When the sun rises, I want you to start speaking about life. And so he does, and he gets dragged before the council, the very council that had crucified Jesus. And Peter gets to give a defense of the hope that's in him. This is a great moment. And Peter's encouraging us. Listen, live your life in a way that your hope, your eyes, your vision is set on the hope that's in you. You have a living hope. You're going to live forever in a body, on a new heaven, in a new earth, with Jesus as the king in the presence of the very God that created you. Forever. No more tears. No more crying. It's hope. Can you talk about it? Can you speak about it? Peter's encouraging us to be able to do that. And in 16 and 17, we'd have a good conscience. Even if you suffer for doing good, slandered for doing right, you're going to be able to sleep like a baby. Because that's God's will. While the severity of suffering will certainly be experienced in this life. The crisis of suffering, that's been taken care of. It's not a crisis. It's the events of life, it's the sufferings and failures, all that seems to crash into our stories and become a part of our history, but it doesn't in any way change how the story ends. The end's already been written. And so what Peter's going to do now is he's going to, beginning in verse 18, he's going to say, listen, right now let me give you an example of this. Let, let me tell you how this works out. I want to illustrate this for you. So verse 18, verse 18 is great. In many ways, I think, well, Peter, you could have just put a period at verse 18 and gone to chapter 4. But, but he doesn't. And, and we, we want to wrestle with this and see why he goes into all this detail. So this is the third time in Peter's letter he's going to speak about the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. All that Jesus accomplishes is victory. So in verse 18, he says, listen, uh, for Christ also suffered once for sins, 
the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit. And so, 18, this is one of the most brilliant, succinct statements in all the biblical literature about the cross of Jesus and its meaning. And the sin that he suffered for was the problem of mankind, for your sin, for my sin, for all the sin, all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. And the suffering he endured was foreshadowed in every sacrifice that ever took place in the Old Testament. And then it says once for all, which brings to mind the daily and the weekly and the monthly and the seasonal and the yearly sacrifices. Jesus, once and for all, was sacrificed. Fully God and fully man. The righteous for the unrighteous. You could write out in your Bibles if you do that next to that. Righteous for the... It's substitution. Same thing Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. That for our sake, he made him to be sin. And he didn't know when he sinned, but he did that so that we might become the righteousness of God. Some people say Jesus died an undeserved death. You, you, you might hear it said that way. And, and from, the, from the standpoint of his, him being innocent and dying, that's absolutely true. But the reality is Jesus didn't die his death. He died our death. He, he died a death we deserved. It's the vicarious death, the substitutionary death. He took your place so that you can take his. And only one ever, this is Jesus, is the power over sin and death and all the effects of the fall. So that's why Peter is going to move into uh, this next section. So Jesus does all that to bring us to God, to, to bring us to God safely. He dies, that's what I mean, he died in, in the flesh, he he, 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 he died a real, natural death. And he's raised sp spiritually in a glorified body that will live forever. And then he, he goes on and he's uh, going to get into this next section. So before we get to this next section, I'll tell you a little bit. Uh, at the end of 2 Peter, Peter's going to say this about Paul. He, he's going to write about Paul... Um, to his readers. You know, Paul writes some things that are hard to understand. He says that in Peter, uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. So Paul's going to write some things that are hard to understand, to which the readers would go, amen, you're right, there's some hard things Paul writes. Don't always understand all that. Except I would look at Peter and say, man, it's like the pot calling the kettle black, bro. Because what Peter's going to write here is harder than anything Paul writes, okay? In fact, Martin Luther in his commentary said this. He said, it's a wonderful, a wonderful text is this. And a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament. So that I do not know for certainty what in this world Peter means. And he goes on for three paragraphs to say, I don't know what this means. I'm about to give you some answers to questions, like my friend says, answers to questions you're not asking, okay? <laughs> so in 19 and 20, look at what he says. So 
Let's follow this. Suffer for doing good. It's okay. You're going to be blessed. It's okay. Suffering's going to come, and it's okay. You're safe. And in 18, Jesus suffered, and he conquers every. He's won. He's won everything. You're winners because of it. You've been won. And so now he's getting into this. In verse 19 and 20, he says, In which he went. So in the Spirit he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. He preached to them. That's what that word proclaimed means. Because they did not formally obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Then he's going to go on to say in uh, verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and powers and authorities having been subjected to him. Now the question is when you read this, go like this. Where did Christ go? And when did he go? And to whom did he preach? And what is it that he said? And why would Peter draw upon this? Well, the first question is, in the Spirit to the spirits in prison. Who are the spirits in prison? Well, throughout the history of the church, there's three primary interpretations, three predominant understandings of how this means. Although there's a, there is a commentator, 1995, Erickson's his last name. He, he, he theorized that there was probably 180 different exegetical options here, but We'll limit it to three this morning, all right? The first one, which is probably the oldest one we know of in the church, goes back to Clement and um, Origen, and it says this, that following the crucifixion of Jesus, following his crucifixion and before his resurrection, so the time that he is buried, that in the spirit, this disembodied spirit... He goes to hell, or he goes to Hades, and he proclaims a victory to the spirits there. Or another version of it is that he goes and he preaches the gospel to those that have died without Christ. Kind of a, a, a purgatory kind of situation. In fact, that understanding shows up in the Apostles' Creed when it says, descended to hell. Which, by the way, no church council ever affirmed the Apostles' Creed, and the reality is the earliest versions of that don't include that statement. Well, for lots of reasons, the primary being the Bible gives no evidence to any teaching like that that um, is by and large rejected by the church. The second interpretation is this. It comes from Augustine, who's who's actually refuting that one I just gave you. And he says it this way. He says, no, no, no. Here's what Peter means. It's, 
it's the pre-incarnate Christ. So it's Jesus before the incarnation. It's, it's Jesus, the second person of the Trinity in the Old Testament. He comes, and in some way that we don't fully understand, by His Spirit, preaches through Noah to the wicked people of the day while He's building the ark. And that carried for a long time in the church... Um, the problem with it is it is a theological explanation. It doesn't do much warrant to the text. And so there, there were always some, some difficulties with it. In fact, even Luther talks about it. He says, I don't, need, I don't even know if I like this, but it's the best option that we have. Well, a third option emerges uh, in the last couple of hundred years, and I'll tell you why it emerges and. Um, and the reason I'm going to tell you is going to make this even more complicated, okay? So, will you hang with me? So, the um, Jewish people of God who preserved the Old Testament as we have it, the 39 books of the Old Testament, um, that, 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 that that was the Word of God, that was inspired, that was... Um, and that's what we believe as having come from God to His people. And we affirm the very same thing. But at the same time, that wasn't the only writings that were out there. And so there's this collection, a, a, a group of writings we call the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha, and they're writings that are not inspired, they're not a part of the canon, but they're writings that would have been known. They, they would have been read. They, they were part of... a of tradition, although not inspired tradition. One of those is a book by the title called First Enoch. It is named after the grandfather of Noah. It is written as though Enoch wrote it, although that couldn't be because it really doesn't appear until about the 3rd century B.C., 2nd century B.C. But in it, there are accounts of the episodes that take place in Genesis before the flood. It is supposedly supposed to be Enoch's account. Now, I'll tell you another little thing. Asia Minor, which is where this is written to, modern-day Turkey, the belief for so long was that the ark settled in its final resting place as the flood subsides on a mount called Ararat, which is in Turkey. And this Asia Minor people, the, the Jews before Christ, the believers after all these people who called themselves, who, who identified as people of God, and, and more, and, and people outside of pagan traditions, they were the keepers of all of the flood narratives. There are four major flood narratives. One of those comes from the book of Enoch. Now, behind what Peter writes it appears to be influenced by the content in First Enoch. So you can go home, you can Google it, you can read it, know it's not inspired, and there's some really crazy stuff in it. 
But it's not the only place in the New Testament. So I want to show you two more places. This is commentary on what it is that we're talking about. Ultimately, Genesis chapter 6. So here's two things I want you to see. One is 2 Peter. This is his second letter, chapter 2, beginning verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, the, the word literally is Tartarus, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the wor world of the ungodly. That hell or Tartarus, also spoken about in the abyss in Luke chapter 8, Jesus encounters the, the guy who's demon-possessed. He says, tell me your name. He says, I'm legion. And the demon says, please, please, don't condemn us to the abyss. And then Jesus casts them out into pigs, and then they go over the, the same deal. Revelation chapter 20, verse 3, same place. It's a bottomless pit that Satan will be chained for a thousand years. You go over to the book of Jude, which is the next to last book. See, see you don't ever get here. You start your Bible reading plan, you quit in Leviticus, you're missing out on all the good stuff. In Jude, verses 6 and 7, it says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, what in the, what's he talking about? But left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise or also indulged in sexual immorality, pursued unnatural desire, served as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So you got 1 Peter chapter 3 and 2 Peter chapter 2 and then Jude. And all of these are references to Genesis chapter 6 influenced, influenced by the content, the beginning content anyway, of this book called 1 Enoch. That does not mean 1 Enoch is inspired. It does not mean it is part of the canon. It means that as Peter is writing to these people, he knew they knew it. So we got to just a minute. Go, go to Genesis chapter 6. Let's unpack this for just a second, and then we'll come back and we'll answer the question, why does Peter include all of this? But in Genesis chapter 6, if you've got your Bibles, I will uh, begin reading in verse 1, and it says this, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. So you have the, the daughters of men. Verse 2, The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Verse 4, The Nephilim who were on the earth in those days, and also forward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually and he regretted that he made man on the earth. In Genesis chapter 1, God, after creation, looks and sees that everything is good. And here in Genesis 6, he looks and sees the worldwide effects of sin and is grieved. 
But the question in Genesis chapter 6 is what's going on there? Who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of men? There's a couple of options. One, see the sons of God as the sign of the line of Seth, the, the third righteous son, a third son born to Adam and Eve after Abel is killed. And that these, the righteous, they ended up marrying, intermarrying with the line of Cain, and, and, that, and that there was a wickedness. The problem is it doesn't explain what, it, what, what came about from that. The readers in Asia Minor, in modern Turkey, they would have understood that the sons of God were actually fallen angels who managed in some way that we are unsure about to take on a human form or to possess or inhabit human form and produce offspring called Nephilim, literally the the fallen ones. First Enoch talks about watchers, that's what he called them, that mingled with women and produced offspring, and from those offspring other spirit, evil spirits were produced. And it's likely that the way Genesis chapter 6 reads it is that there was a belief in the men of the day that if they gave their daughters to these sons of God, which in Job are fallen angels, that if they'd given them, so that, so that this fallen angelic realm would unite somehow with the humanity, that, that the promise from this fallen angelic realm, from, from, the, from, the, from the wiles of Satan, was it you want to escape death? You want immor immortality? You marry with us. And you'll never die. Which is why God says, Listen, my, my spirit's not going to abide forever. You, you get 120 years until fast food's invented. And you get less than that. And so what Peter's saying is that after the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus in the glorified body, and he takes his seat at the right hand of the Father. He proclaims, he preaches his victory over sin and death, even as far back to the evil and the wickedness that existed before the flood, and that there is no evil that Christ has not conquered. That from the very beginning... Man steps out of the garden in judgment. And even the wickedness that brought the flood, Jesus has conquered. And then he says in verse 21, this baptism, it corresponds to this. So he's not saying, listen, it's not bad. It's not, we do baptism here, as Brent talked about in a couple of weeks if somebody goes in the water and they come out of the, the water did not save you. We have no special water, okay? You might be cleaner when you come out of it, or you might not. But it doesn't save you. The best water can do is wash your outside, but it corresponds. The word is, it's a type. It, it's an anti. It looks back and goes, okay, like Noah was saved in the ark through the judgment, 
you are saved through Jesus, through the ark of the cross of Jesus. And that, that's a picture of it. It symbolizes it. It is an outward statement of an inward reality that you have been saved. Like Noah was saved from the judgment, you are saved from the coming judgment. You will not be harmed. Jesus was harmed. He was killed. He suffered. You, you're safe. No one can revile you. No one can slander you. No one can put you to death for you naming Christ and the hope that is in you. It does, yes, they may kill your body, but they will not win. You have already been won. Peter's encouraging his readers. Have great hope. There's nothing anybody can do to you in this life that ultimately matters. Because everything that matters has already been done in Jesus. And in verse 22, he's gone into heaven. He's at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. It is the, it is the beginning of every knee bowing, every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Not only was he resurrected to save you, but he was seated at the right hand to become the king. And the work of Christ effectively, satisfactorily, is a death blow to the evil from the beginning to the end. In 1852, I'll end with this. There's a man, Matthew Bridges, he's a hymn writer, and he was struggling mightily with the suffering in his life, and uh, just didn't know what he was going to do. He'd lost hope. He begins to read his Bible, and he becomes overwhelmed by the goodness of God and the grace that comes through the death of Jesus. And it absolutely transformed him. He was saved. And then writes this hymn that you know. Many of you know. It says, Crown him with many crowns, the Lamb upon the throne. Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. Crown him the Lord of heaven, one with the Father known and one with the Spirit through him given from yonderous glorious throne. To thee be endless praise, for thou hast died for me. Be thou, O Lord, through endless days, adored, magnified. Crown Him with many crowns. His glories we now sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring, and lives that death may die. Let me ask you this morning, have you, have you crowned Him? King, over 
all things. It's easy to let the circumstances, the cares of the day, the sufferings, the real sufferings in this life, to serve as the king. It's not the king. Jesus has come, has suffered, died, buried, resurrected, and ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he is the king of all. And all evil, and all suffering, and all sin, and all death, from beginning to end, has been conquered. If you would, would you bow with me? We'll pray. Father, we confess that um, there are hard things. As we walk through your word, verse by verse, that we come to places that are hard for us to understand. We come to places that confront the materialism that we live in, believing that everything there is we can see, and the reality is there is so much more than what we see. As Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6, our battle, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. But powers and principalities that, Father, when the veil comes off in this world and we are united with you physically forever, Father, what we see Dimly, what we catch glimpses of now, we will see in full color. And as the battle rages around us, and as suffering comes in, Father, let us, as Peter instructs us and encourages us, to know that your Son Jesus has accounted for, paid for, satisfied. Everything from beginning to end. Conquering evil, conquering sin, conquering death. Father, that He has won us, that He has brought us to You. And that we are safe in You forever. So Father, we pray this the only way we can. And that is in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us, and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.